Welcome to you. If it's your first time with us, it's great to have you here, or if it's your first time back after a while away, um, it's good to see you again. I think uh, the topic that I'm about to address is, is so fraught. It's like, I think, taking a lit blowtorch into a fireworks shop and just waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, and I think the inevitable happens the, because we are sexual beings and um, sex and sexuality so affects us at every age. So no matter w at what point you find yourself, you are affected actually by this topic. And so what I'm hoping to do in this talk really is to establish um, some of the principles that the Bible presents to us so that we can use that as a foundation for maybe interacting on any particular topic or any aspect of sex and sexuality that you would like to do some further thinking on. Um, if truth be told, probably there at least needs to be two talks. So I could give this first talk, and then I give a second talk kind of pressing down into um, the implications of different things. But for this morning, I'm taking as my key verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, which says this, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because in what God says through Paul there, he sums up perfectly what Jesus is on about. Jesus who says, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. <laughs> and it's okay to acknowledge what you were but don't go back to it. And where that's going to leave us is here in being called to the restored wrestle. That's how I'm going to term it. Being restored in Christ, but being called to wrestle with his lordship through what we're going to hear about in just a moment is sexual discipleship. And so I think the Bible is completely realistic on this topic and that's why I wanted to start with this video, which we're going to watch right now. Welcome to this introductory session to the Valiant Man program. My name's Alan Meyer, and over the next 40 minutes, I hope to convince you that every man needs sexual discipleship, and every church has a responsibility to provide. Program. I've been asked a number of times, why would you focus on sexual discipleship uh, as an issue for a doctoral program. The answer to that question lies in a number of experiences I've had over my life. I commenced in ministry after spending some years as a high school teacher. The very first time I was sent to preach at somebody else's church, I went from Melbourne to Adelaide and there I served in what was at the time a great church. The pastor of that church had come to Christ later in his life and had made some significant sacrifices. He and his wife had purchased a tent. They had traveled across the outback South Australia, planting churches in country towns. And by the time I came visiting that weekend, this was a significant church and these were, were really uh, wonderful people. At least that's as they seemed to me. Uh, I did my ministry and I came home. A few weeks later, my senior pastor came to me and said, you know, the man you did some ministry for a few weeks ago, he's no longer in ministry. And I said, well, why would that be? He said, well, it comes to light that he's been in adultery with a dozen different women in his church. Now, I wasn't so much shocked that a minister could make a mistake. That's nothing new. 
What shocked me was that the man was nearly 70 years of age. And here I was as a young uh, youth pastor launching out on what was going to be a lifetime of challenging ministry. And my first encounter with a, a hero of the faith is to find that in, in his 70s, he's in adultery. And I asked myself, don't those little D-cell batteries go flat sometime in your life? <laughs> I was concerned to recognise that I'd already felt the pressure of my own sexual drive. I'd already felt the, the pressure of, of my own sexual makeup. And to think that a hero like this could stumble in his 70s made me wonder, is anybody going to survive the race? Well, over the following years, I have experienced so many disappointing encounters. I lost four friends in a single year to, to sexual misconduct and two weekends in a row, just a decade ago. Uh, I was booked to speak for two weekends for two friends and by the time I got to their churches, one weekend after another, neither of them was in ministry anymore. And again, as I flew home from that second weekend, I was desolate. And I said to God, somebody has got to help men manage their sexuality. The, the list of casualties is, is too long. But then there was a, a final straw that broke the camel's back for me. And that was in 2004. By that time, we had been running a support group for men struggling with sexual addiction. And while I was away doing ministry overseas, I received a report to say that one of the men who had begun attending on the fringes of that group had committed suicide. He had acted out of his sexual passions in his earlier years, and now uh, the police were beginning to investigate some of his behaviour, and in fear that it would end in prison, he took his own life. And I said to my staff and to my leadership, this issue of men and sexual discipleship is so serious Somebody ought to do something to create a course that would allow every church to be able to give good sexual discipleship to men. And so in 2004, I left most of my responsibilities to one side and devoted myself to the completion of my doctorate with the Valiant Man program. So in fairness to the blokes that he mentions, we need to be a little bit more balanced and Note that there were women involved as well. They might have also perhaps felt the coercion of a guy who was in power, and for whatever reason, they also got involved in adultery. But that sexual misconduct is also a female problem. Um, but that might not be your thing at the moment. Uh, maybe your thing is romance novels. Uh, I've never read one, so Mills and Boone have never made a cent out of me. But I've come to understand that they really verge on being soft porn and even violence against women um, in books that women mainly read. But that might not be your thing. Uh, your thing at the moment might be that you're just reeling with the change to sexual ethics in our society, in your workplace, in your family. Um, your kids are in a different generation just thinks about this stuff so differently and you just cannot work it out. Or you might be at the grandparent stage where your grandchildren are so deep into a different world that you never knew that you, you just cannot get a grip on it. And I need to make clear that the people I'm preaching to this morning are those who are following Jesus or just trying to work out who Jesus is and his call on their lives. I'm not preaching to the world. 
Okay, so I'm not calling out the slide in sexual ethics. I'm actually preaching to the people who have already been called by God to live a restored sexuality, as challenging as that might be, wherever you find yourselves. Because it's not really our job to call the world out. It's our job to show out to the world who has called us. And that's the Lord Jesus. But I wanted to start with this video for a couple of reasons. He is so realistic, so helpful, because he just underlines for us that sexual desire and drive is such a big factor in humans. And it, for that reason, so often it's so hard being human. It's just one of, one of a number of things that makes it difficult for us. But the second reason is he uses the term sexual discipleship. And I think that's so, so helpful. Because what he's getting at and what he gets at through the course is how sexuality is taught and trained in the following and obeying of Jesus, whose follower you are. <laughs> and all of life needs to be brought under the Lord Jesus. Sexuality is just one of those parts. So what we're going to look at um, in the next few minutes is by just recapping that any understanding of sexuality comes from how God has created it, that he has created sex. He has created male and female to be in a sexual union of marriage for sex. But we're going to see also how badly distorted by sin his perfect plan is and that our sexuality is broken and we live in a world that is sexually broken. But finally, we're going to see how what God is on about is restoration by Jesus, in Jesus. And so like I said before, and just to repeat it to be clear, it's Jesus who says, come as you are. Come, come, come. But don't stay as you are. Be made holy by me, me in your place at the cross, and then walk as you struggle on in sanctification. That's what we're going to hear about this morning. Please join me. Let's pray for God's help in all of this. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your great honesty in your word. Thank you not only that you tell us the perfection of your creation, but you don't hide from us the devastation of sin, how it breaks us and distorts sexuality. But thank you for not leaving us alone, Lord God. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus, who perfectly obeyed you and showed us what it looks like to be truly human and in our place made it possible for us to be restored. Please help us, Lord, not only understand these things this morning, Lord God, but be transformed and struggle on in the wrestle of sexual discipleship. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to be human and sexual creatures? What does it mean to live a restored sexuality in Christ? Well, restoration has its foundation in creation. We are created creatures and sex is God's idea and it looks like bit of sex has been going on throughout time and we're just kind of representative of that in this room however many years ago that might have been in your history but I wanted us to glance back at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to kind of get our feet pointed again um, in how God has planned all this out so do you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and let's just look again at verse 26 and 27 so this is God creating, and it's a moment of the creation, not only of humanity, but the differentiation between the animals and humanity. Genesis chapter 1 from verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So we hear humans are made, they are male and female, and that complementarity equally reflects God's image. Uh, And in fact, they're created equal and different, but to be united so that the sum is greater than the parts. Okay? And so it's really, really important to see here, the Bible's vision of male and female is a shared vision. It's not the dominance of one over the other. It's not the complete similarity of both of them. They are different, they are equal, and they're made to go together. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and read 23 to 25 because it's there that some of the, the distinctiveness of the way they're created and the reason for it is more specific. So this is Genesis chapter 2. Um, let me read just actually from the back end of verse 20. And so, so this, is, this is the second or the parallel account of creation. And again, we get to the creation of humanity. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Such a beautiful moment. I mean, again, it's quite clear, isn't it? They're equal as they've been created by God. They're different in their sex, male and female. And on one hand, I think they're created for a spiritual unity because Adam's first kind of word over the woman is this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. (laughs) So he's got this understanding that there's this deep unity that they share under God together. And there's a sexual unity that is designed by God. (laughs) They are going to experience that in sex as they become one flesh. And to be human is to be male and female, where marriage happens to share the vision of what God has created, serving God's purpose. And we need to say God loves sex. He created it, but in a context. And you might have looked this week at the Song of Solomon, chapter 7 and chapter 8, where God's design is absolutely in full cry. And I can only thank the Lord, actually, that this Monday, which is this last Monday, which is normally our life group night, was the parish prayer meeting. So we didn't have to read Song of Solomon 7 and 8 together in the group. I think I might have been too embarrassed. And if you haven't read it yet, please do, because it is the Bible saying a sexual relationship between a man and woman in full cry is a beautiful thing when it's working the way that God has designed it to work. And there are just no apologies being made about that. Sadly, that might not be our own personal experience, but God doesn't apologise for what he has created 
and the goal that he set that for. But the world they would soon inhabit is broken. And so is human relating and sexuality, which is affected by, the, by sin, Adam and Eve's sin, and the curse that comes to them for that. And that, this is my second point, broken. Um, because I'm just going to roll through, sadly, some of the moments that the Bible records, um, giving us an idea of what life and sex looks like when neither is lived God's way. Straight up, God's image in body image is no longer seen. Adam and Eve cover themselves. So they don't see the glory of God. They see something that needs to be covered as things go pear-shaped. Then marriage becomes polygamous. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 4. There's abuse and there's potential violence. Lamech has two wives which just goes immediately against what God has set up in the creation order. And he's like some gun-slinging guy out of a Western movie, kind of waving the guns in the air, making threats to his wives as he threatens everybody else if they threaten him. It's just awful. Then fertility is under threat as a couple needs to go outside of marriage and pursue surrogacy as an option with all the attendant challenges and difficulties. Abram and Sarah can't conceive. So they use her servant Hagar. A little bit further along, men have sex with men and they use violent means to pursue that. Lot and his family need rescue from the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, men inflamed with passion ignore God's good design and plan for sex. You can read about it in Genesis 34, but Dinah is raped by Shechem. And then, when the kingdom of God has been established under David, Tamar is raped by her half-brother, David's son, Amnon. Inside and outside Israel, prostitution ignores God's one-flesh marriage. Ur's wife, Tamar, poses as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law Judah to sleep with him in order to have a child. And then Ruth, as we know, is a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Men abuse power and God's call on their lives to commit adultery. At the height of his height, King David violates Bathsheba's and Uriah's marriage and sleeps with her. Then the offspring of that sinful sexual liaison ignores the one flesh plan that God had. Solomon, like his father David, had multiple wives and gods. And finally, if you weren't clear enough on the broken state of sexuality or depressed enough, just as I've mentioned some of the things that the Bible racks up, Israel's relationship with God is described as adulterous marriage. Hosea, the prophet's wife, effectively acts this out. And the world they lived in and their sexuality is broken. It violates the covenant marriage God created, both in creation and in his law through Moses. And I'm sorry if you've identified yourself in anything that I've just read out, either as being the victim of some of those things or as being the perpetrator. But here's the cold comfort. You're living in a world that is broken. And sexuality is wrecked by the brokenness of this world. And there's a reason why this stuff goes down. It's because the world does not work the way that God designed it. And like I said, that's cold comfort. 
Because if you've been the victim of any of these things, it doesn't comfort you at all, does it? But it does explain something. And it's helpful to us because what happens in the way that God has made us is that we have the idea of perfection in our minds and our hearts, but we live the broken wreckedness of the world. And it's excruciating to be in that tension. And so I'm sorry if for you, actually, you have been a victim of any one of those things. But the good news is that God will not leave it there. And this is my third point. He wants to restore humanity and human sexuality. And remarkably, he does this through Jesus, a single Jewish man. Jesus shows us God's plan for sexuality. And guess what? It doesn't include having sex. God's plan for sexuality is self-control through obedience to the Father, which brings God praise and us salvation. So I'm going to repeat that because I think it's so significant, for, especially if you're single, if you've never married, but also if you find yourself widowed, you are not deficient. But secondly, if you find yourself in a relationship, you've got to realise the fullness of sexual expression is not the fullness of being human. The fullness of being human is self-control through obedience to the Father, which brings God's pr God praise and service of others. And the highest point of that service was Jesus bringing us salvation. So neither sex or sexuality or his singleness defines him. It's so good, so liberating, it's so revolutionary, right? So in, in our culture, and I don't think it's just in our culture now because of the ideological shift regarding sex. I think it's been in every age. We are just so driven by the sex drive that God has created in us, especially blokes, that we feel like the, the full expression of that is us maximising who we are as humans. But Jesus says, in everything that he does, no, that is not the case. And so before considering how Jesus actually speaks specifically about sex and sexuality, what I wanted to do is make as clear as I possibly could the principle Jesus works with, and it's this. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. So why is that important? I'm going to say it now and I'll say it again in just a moment. Here's why it's important. Because in this understanding of sexual discipleship, Jesus is saying, come and be restored by me and led by me, no matter who you are. And that's a big challenge to us because in our sinfulness, we're so often saying to God and saying, so often saying to the Lord Jesus, no, no, I will do it my way. But Jesus says the opposite. No, no, no. It's going to work God's way. And I'm telling you God's way and I'm showing you that. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And here's how I've thought about that. As I've just kind of flicked back through the Gospel of Mark, mainly, to, to reflect on some episodes there. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is presented as starting his earthly ministry by saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And so he's basically saying, the kingdom is here, you're out of it. But don't stay as you are. Repent, trust me, come under God's rule. Um, there's more than once that he encounters someone with an impure spirit. And he, he, he literally says, as he drives out the impure spirit, what, he, what he's saying is, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. I don't want, don't, don't want you to be demon-possessed. <laughs> I want you to be freed from that. Be clean. Be restored. Come back into the humanity that God created you to have. 
There are other moments where he encounters people who have leprosy, skin disease, which makes them ceremonially unclean. They can never get close to the temple and they can never get close to God. And what they've actually got to do is stay distant from people. And Jesus, he says to them, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Be clean. Be restored to God and to others. And just finally... When Jesus is saying what the real problem for people is, it's not on the outside. It's not not how they appear. It's not their religiousness. It's what's going on in the heart because from out of the heart come evil thoughts, malice, murder, theft. Sin comes out of the heart. And it's the manifestation of rejecting God, the ultimate sin, and that self-management. And Jesus says, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Repent. Come and follow me. Be forgiven. Be restored. So here's the dynamic at work. Jesus and people either coming towards him or people either going away from him. Jesus, people who will say, yes, I will actually let your word be ruling me. Or Jesus and people say, no, I'm I'm not going to let that be the case. And Jesus decides about humans and their restoration. So just like it was for anyone that he encountered then, it's the same for us today. Will you let him? Will I let him? Because he's saying, come as you are, but don't stay as you are, with regard to your life, your eternity, and sexuality. Okay. So there's, there's the fundamental thing that we've all got to grip. Will we let him? So I just want to look at two examples of when Jesus is actually speaking about sex and sexuality. The first I'm just going to recount, but if you're taking notes, you will be able to look in on it. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. So the Pharisees front up, they're challenging him, and they chuck a question at him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so what they're talking about is the law of Moses, but as it relates to what God has created in the beginning. And Jesus says, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you that law. Because in the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. So what God unites, when a man unites with his wife, let no man separate. And again, what Jesus is talking about is, God's vision is shared, it's equal, it's different, it's united. It's one flesh, not separated. How does sexuality keep working in in Jesus' day, according to Jesus? Well, just on the basis of what God has created, that hasn't changed. But he basically points out to them, guess what the biggest thing is, the biggest barrier to living sexuality God's way? It's the hardness of your own heart. (laughs) Will you let God's word rule over you? Will you let Jesus' word rule over you? And he's saying, come as you are, guys, with your hard hearts, but don't stay that way. (laughs) Come with your hearts loaded and locked to try and take me down, but don't stay that way. Soften up. As you hear my word, the word of God, you repent and you pursue God's sex. So let me just say here as a a bit of an aside, um, I don't want to suggest that 
This is saying that marriage must be locked in at all costs if any one of us finds ourselves in a marriage which is effectively not Christian anymore. There is no love, there is no care, there is no self-sacrifice. So please don't hear me saying that, that marriage must be pursued at all costs. Um, I pray for all of our married hearts that they would stay soft. But there might be a moment when um, that is just not happening and, and it's not possible to stay together anymore. But um, I'd, I'd be glad to talk about that a little bit more afterwards if you'd like to. But Jesus is saying, come as you are, but don't stay as you are in regard to human sexuality. And he shows that quite clearly in another episode, which I'd like to read for you. And we find it in Luke chapter 7. So do you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 7? And I'll read from verse 36. This is Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke seven thirty-six. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him or what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon... I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So his compassion offers forgiveness and restoration. And isn't that good news for any one of us who has found ourselves in that sin of living sexually in a way that does not please God. So great. Jesus basically says, come in, come in. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And this undeserved kindness drives her to repentance. And God willing, change, living that restored sexuality the call is so clear, isn't it? But humanity finds it very, very hard. And I don't know about you, but I do. And it's a heart problem that flows out of the body and into life. 
It's an obedience that only Jesus perfectly does. And praise God, he does it on our behalf. (laughs) So not only in his life, but he takes that to the cross. And he'll stay on the cross because he knows that we just can't achieve righteousness. And especially not in the area of sexuality. So be encouraged, but be devastated at the same time. But be glad that Jesus has done it for you. This whole situation requires the restoration that only Jesus can do, and he has done it. And so what Jesus does at the cross sets up restored living. And now I'm just going to spend a moment on thinking about some of that application as we, as we look into 1 Corinthians 6. I think the, the Christian situation now is so well summed up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And I'd really encourage you to commit that to memory because it's been so helpful to me in my Christian life. Hebrews 10:14 says this, For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow, how can that be? Christ has done it, and if you trust him, you are perfect. But if you're trusting Christ, you're in process. Okay? So the job is still ongoing. His spirit is working in you. And that, that gives me such hope. Both things give me such great hope. Because I find it very, very hard sometimes to accept that when God looks at me as I trust Jesus, he thinks I'm terrific. <laughs> I just cannot get that in my head. Really, Lord? <laughs> me? A sinner? But it's true. And, and I love that. And I'm so encouraged by the fact that God is, he has not, he is not done with me. So as much as I know that this is true, and, I, and I'm encouraged by that, I'm really, really encouraged that God is, is in the work of perfecting me. And so that leaves us actually as humans who have been restored, but we are being restored. And that's why Alan Meyer is so helpful, because he presents us this concept of sexual discipleship, which suggests to us, yes, you are at the mercy of these desires of this sin, but God is not finished with you. And because of his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to keep reaching in. You have been made perfect by the blood of Christ, and he is at work in you. Hallelujah. There is hope. That is hope. It's so good. So how do we then live? With God's help, struggling on to live a restored sexuality, waiting for the day when we won't have to struggle anymore. And that'll be so good. So that brings us to 1 Corinthians 6. And I just wanted to reread together verses 7 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 to 11. And as you turn that up, let me just refresh your memory of the context because it's really important, just the immediate context, let alone the cultural context. Paul is talking to them um, about them standing on their rights and wanting to decide and wanting to have it over each other and wanting to say, I know. And he's saying... Now, hang on a sec. That's not the dynamic in the Christian life. It works with God having the priority and you putting yourself under him and then letting that love show itself out to your brothers and sisters. From verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead... You yourselves cheat and do wrong. You do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, it's not just about sex, right? And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he's saying to them, look, be who you are, but don't use your freedom to sin. Yeah, you're freed from that guilt um, that would not allow you to get into paradise because Jesus has taken it, but don't abuse it. Live out the new restored sexuality. And it's so important to see, isn't it, that like I, I said, I guess in the middle of the reading there, it's not just about sex. There, there are tons of things. But the sexual aspect is really important. And he goes, he goes on to explain that because he says, you are one flesh with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So don't betray that marriage by sexually defiling it. You are part of this divine marriage between Jesus and you. Don't unite that body with anybody else in a way that doesn't please God. And have a look at verse 18, and we'll just read to the end. And he explains that some more. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You aren't your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And I reckon um, if you were listening to the, these words and the words of Jesus before the cross and before the resurrection, you might just say, oh, well, that, that's great. It's just another opinion. But now that these words are coming from Jesus through the Apostle Paul after the resurrection, I, I think you're going to be listening, right? <laughs> this is actually the way that the universe works. Because the risen Lord Jesus says, it's on my say-so. And it's a good word. It's so good. So how should we then live? What does it mean to be human, sexual creatures restored? Well, like Alan Meyer said, it's a call to Christian discipleship. It's a call to sexual discipleship. Now, you can't help what you feel. But you can control what you do with it. So absolutely, across everyone within the St. Matthew's community, there are going to be people who've experienced everything. There are going to be people who've done everything. There are going to be people who are currently feeling things. And some things that you might not want to feel, but nonetheless that you do. It might just be, um, as a bloke, you've got this absolute sexual overdrive and you cannot control it. It feels like a beast and it's awful. And maybe that's led you down the path of porn or, or whatever it might be as an outlet. Um, I can't speak for women, but like just that, that little insight before, the romance novel kind of path might be your path and that's kind of your outlet. It might be same-sex attraction. You don't want to feel the way you do, but you do, and okay. And, and for wherever you are at, you can't control, you, you, you can't help what you feel, but you can control what you do with it. And so I wanted to finish with, with a story that kind of lets us in to understanding just what it's like for, for anyone in a church to feel certain feelings, how we might also grow as a church in dealing with that. But the call on the life of any one person 
to obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ as the full expression of being human rather than acting out on whatever sexual feeling we might have. So I'm reading from this book called Sexagesis, and this is just a recounting of a particular story of a, of a pastor, an Anglican minister in Sydney, Barry McGrath. A woman I know turned to Christ at 16. Her same-sex attraction was a battle and struggle. She felt isolated and lonely in her predicament. Sadly, she could not talk to anyone about how she felt about her sexuality. At 21, she decided to go to a church which embraced her lesbian attraction and encouraged her to embrace her sexuality. The three years she was a part of that church was a time of exploration for her, and it did not eventuate in the liberty she hoped for. She may have found a church which affirmed her sexuality, yet she could not agree with her teaching on sexuality as it was at a remove from what she read in God's word. Try as she might to protect her lesbian identity, she was torn between a desire to be true to the faith she had uncovered in the scriptures and her integrity as a person. She ended up leaving the church which told her it was fine for her to be lesbian and made a decision to go to a church which embraced a traditional biblical position on sexuality. She chose to live a life where she would not pursue her desire for other women. Talking to her is not a tale of repression. It is the story of someone making a decision about how she wants to live as God's person. Life is rarely straightforward and easy. But people like this woman have found a peace in leading a life of, a life of obedience. She is not looking to be heterosexual nor to be cured. She is merely seeking to live a holy and obedient life. We may not choose our desires, but neither do our desires have to make our choices for us. This woman's story could have been very different if the church had been willing in her teenage years to hear her story. She really was forced away from her church by its resistance to hearing her struggles around her sexuality. Why was there not an openness to listening to the story of her sexuality? Churches need to repent of an atmosphere where the saints cannot be open and safe with their struggles and the complexity of their sexuality. There is not some place in the future where sexuality is neat and organised. There is not some place in the future of churches where sexuality is not problematic and complex and challenging. It is a myth to consider that if we just get a bit more open and relaxed, then sexuality will cease to be a fraught area in our churches. That's the reality. And so in our restored human sexuality, we're called to, into that wrestle. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to, to do that. Um, if you do need to speak to someone, go to someone that you trust who can keep confidence. Um, I would be glad to be that person if you felt you can trust me. If you can't... I will pray that you can find someone who, who can um, and that you would press in to understanding Jesus better, his great love and grace for you and that your best humanity is actually obedience to him above all else. Let's pray that that might be the case. Please join me and let's pray. Father, thank you that we are washed and we are sanctified and justified in the Lord Jesus, Lord God, that cannot change as we trust him. Father, we thank you that you have made perfect forever those of us now in Christ who are being made holy. Please help us, Lord, to be in the restored sexual struggle, to be bringing ourselves to you in honesty, asking for your help, and growing as a church, Lord God, who can, that can be honest, but preach the gospel of grace to each other. Father, for those of us who are struggling with unwanted feelings, we do ask, Lord, your help. 
and that Jesus would be Lord over all of us in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.